0: Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. This is episode number 18 and today is officially Earth Day. Uh, I've dubbed this week Earth Week and released 3 earthy related episodes. Or, Well, the third one will be on Friday. This is number two of Earth Week. And our storyteller today is Jody Salmond. She's with Reef Check Australia and done a ton of work with Reef Check around the world. She will also tell tell us about that, and she'll also tell us about um, all the citizen science work that they do, her time at Christmas Island, her time working in Mozambique, this cool story about her and 45 whale sharks, which I really enjoyed, and I'm sure that you will too. Um, And Jody has a very interesting story, and it was great to hear it, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Uh, Jody is also in Homeward Bound with me and many other storytellers that you've heard from in Team HB5. So, you'll hear us talk about that a little bit towards the end. Um, yeah, so today is Earth Day, and this is Jody Salmond, and enjoy.
1: So, essentially, um, the crux of what I do is so, I work for a not for profit called Reef Check Australia. So, Reef Check, a lot of people may have heard of it, it's actually operational throughout the world, so in over 90 countries and territories around the world. Um, and so, Reef Check Australia is just one branch of that. And essentially what it came out of was uh, in 1997 a bunch of scientists got together at the international coral reef symposium and said so what's going on with the state of our reefs and everyone went well actually in Australia this is what's happening and and in the states this is what's happening and over here this is what's happening but no one could actually tell the story together um, no one could globally compare anything so a gentleman actually was like well why don't we come up with a global comparison and that's essentially where reef check was, was established um, and I completely and fell into the, the position itself, but, uh, way back in my undergrad, um, I really liked to volunteer to go out and do, um, any kind of research field research. And I got known quite well for being one of those people that will just go and do any research. So I was sizing mud crabs in the local river and I was dissecting fish to find tiny little parasites and I was, I learned how to spear fish so I could get a particular type of fish to monitor their habitats and behaviors which to be honest I shot one fish in that entire um, class and I refused to ever do so again I felt so bad I've never ever picked up a spear gun ever again fair Um, but yeah so I pretty much just um I stumbled upon it and one one of these such amazing adventures was to a place called Lizard Island and to Orpheus Island so very well-known reefs um off up off the Queensland coastline in Australia and one of the ladies who was doing a project that was part of her phd was just to monitor whether this international glo- this global um reef health monitoring protocol might actually work on a global basis didn't think anything of it and she's like oh yeah it's called reef check i'm just testing it out um and then same thing i didn't think too much of it managed to utilize that that kind of platform for a couple of years Finished my degree, went and ended up working around Australia, working with CSIRO and uh, the Brisbane Museum looking at parasites because I actually studied marine parasitology in particular. Um, Eventually found a job over on Christmas Island, which everyone knows Christmas Island for the detention centre, but I was there as it was being built and so the area is actually known for some really amazing species, some endemic species, so beautiful animals that have never been found anywhere else. and whilst I was there, there was a call out that said, hey, does anybody know reef check methodology? And I was like, actually I do. And the opportunity to essentially get in the water rather than being covered in crazy ants, which is actually their name. But instead of being covered in ants the entire time, I jumped in the water um, and learnt the protocol there. And was like, it was random that I'd ever even heard of it, let alone that it was on this island. Um, continued my travels and, and actually ended up living in Mozambique in Africa. Um, for two years and as part of that we looked at doing different monitoring for uh, some coral reef species and just happened to know someone over there that was actually a Reef Check Australia trainer and they're like well we'll show you how to do this and we actually set up a uh, Reef Check uh, Mozambique in a place called Zavra and Tofu and then same thing did that for a little while moved back to Australia and within days of coming back to Australia I saw a post on seek our, our national like advertising for job seekers and it's like seeking uh, like somebody who wants to do some reef health monitoring for Reef Check Australia. I'm like, are you kidding me? This has actually <laughs> followed me around the entire world for my entire marine biology career. So essentially that's how I started off being um, yeah, involved with Reef Check and that was in 2010. So yeah, I've uh, lived and breathed Reef Check for a really long time essentially. I was just like following you around like, Hey, I'm
2: here. Hey.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm like, well, I don't have a choice really, do I? You must be the perfect fit for me.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. I had only only actually heard of it because of your Facebook. I hadn't ever really heard of it before, but we don't, we have some reefs like way offshore, but they're not, they're not like, you know what you think. of. I mean, they are reefs, but it's not like big charismatic reefs, I guess, like the Great Barrier Reef or whatever, Uh, I don't think people really know that they're there. Um, So I don't know if anything's going on there. I'm going to Google it and find out though. (laughs) Yeah,
1: definitely. Well, it's actually happening off the main, that Reef Check International is actually off California. So there's definitely some reef health monitoring going on around certain areas. But um, yeah, I'd have to do the same and jump online and see exactly where they are. But they are still pretty active. And actually places like Malaysia are super active. They seem to pop up on my feed all the time. So they're doing really great things
2: over there as well that's fantastic. It sounds like it's monitoring, right? But I don't know how you monitor reefs. I do monitoring of wetlands, so I know how that works, but I don't know how it works for reefs because it's probably similar and also super different.
1: Yeah, so the way that we actually do the monitoring in particular, so we really rely on citizen science. So that's where it's all at for us. So the power of people, right? Uh, What we like to say is that it's gonna take all hands on deck to make any real significant changes. So what we do is we train recreational divers to go out and monitor the reef for signs of reef health. And that includes things like substrates or what's making up the reef. So those different types of coral, algae, rock, sand, sometimes really unexciting things, but actually all vitally important for the health of any reef structure. Um, We look at the invertebrates or these keystone species that are again found globally and should be monitored everywhere. We look at different fish species and usually that's a little bit more um, area specific. So Australia, we actually looked at different fish that are eating fish um, and that were being monitored with big groups like the Australian Institute of Marine Science and the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, as well as more localised examples. So what are people actually fishing out a lot of? What do people like to eat in any area? Um, And what uh, do people see as economically significant? And then on top of that, we actually monitor for different impacts as well. So that might be uh, bleaching, which is a big one that's at the forefront, obviously, but also damage. So whether that's damage from organisms such as uh, crown of thorns or this small snail called a drapella snail, uh, and also things like debris. So marine debris, another big topic. But when we look at marine debris, we're actually looking at what is it, whether that's plastic, metal, glass, etc. And if it's safe to do so, we will remove that as well. So Lots of different things that you can see along the way. Um, So usually it takes about four people minimum to do a survey. Everyone jumps in the water. Uh, We have a tape measure or two tape measures. We wind them out. So it's actually a 100 metre tape measure broken into four. So there's four replicates of 20 metres in there with a five metre gap in between all of those. And all of that data is collected. uh, So one is actually via a point intercept method. So every 50 centimetres, we're recording exactly what is under that tape measure and we do it to remove bias. So we always go on one side of the tape measure, we use what's called a plumb bob. So somebody has to, it has to land somewhere so that you can get it, trying to remove that bias as best as possible. Um, and then for invertebrates and impacts, people swim in an S or U shaped pattern all the way along, documenting what they find within a two and a half meter area either side. And then fish is that same two and a half meter area, but also up, so it becomes a tunnel of like five metres up and five metres across, essentially. So lots and lots of data collected in one survey, all done in under 60 minutes. And then if you look at just the substrate, there's about 180 data points per survey just for the substrate. So the idea is when it's actually collated and then broken down as a percentage, you get a rough estimate or an estimate as to exactly what is happening in any one area. So yeah, lots of stuff. And then we do that on an annual basis as a minimum as well.
2: Yeah, that's a lot of data um do y'all go back to the same spots year after year or like the exact spots or is it just like the same general area Uh,
1: so it's the same spot and we do that as best we can but they are not permanent transects so some places in the world do have permanent transects it's a little bit harder for us to get uh the protocol underway or the the paperwork to make sure that happens but Um, I also, Christmas Island did have permanent transects, and what I found really funny is it's like, all right, here's a GPS. Uh, Now, it should be somewhere around here. And then if you're only monitoring it on an annual basis, looking for, like, this tiny little star picket covered Mm -hmm. in all different types of algae is ridiculous. And so then you have to line it up with an actual direction and then try and find the end star picket within, like, this big radius. So... We don't do that. What we do do is we go back to these same areas every year. um, We use visual cues above the water, like, oh, this mountain lines up with this over here and then we descend Mm -hmm. here and and we always stay at a constant. So the most important things are constant depth, constant, and that means that it's at the average high tide mark, this, 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 et cetera. So we're monitoring all of that. And then underwater, if there's any visual cues as well, we try and use that. So some of them are super easy And we're like, hey, we're looking for this pinnacle. Oh, got it. Bang on. Otherwise, some of the other sites are um, as best as we can. But also remembering that the idea of this is that it's a stratified haphazard method. And what that means is essentially as long as something that is there is also representative of that site. Yes, there might be slight changes if you miss it by a metre or five. But realistically, we're no further than five to ten metres away from where we started at any one point. So yeah, the best that we can do, because otherwise you'll lo- lose so much time underwater trying to find these locations.
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's way easier for me. to. I was just curious because like ours are permanent sites, but we're on land. So that's way easier. And we have like PVC poles that we can see.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. It's totally different. I was, I was just curious because uh, I was just curious how, um, I guess how the data shakes out and then how you can use that to sort of, I guess, determine long-term trends or things. Uh, Cause I guess it depends on if it's permanent or not, but maybe it doesn't depend that much.
1: No, I mean, realistically the areas we are going to, I'm confident that we get them almost exactly. So we've got a few key members of the team that are our team leaders. And so it's nice cause after a while, you're like, right, I know this site, I know this site, you know, when mm-hmm. you're there. And it's uh, there's a couple of sites in particular that I swear every time I go there, I get really nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh, am I going to get it? Cause it's really hard to find and you'll see us dancing underwater a little bit. It's like, thumbs up, we actually managed to find it. This is, yes, we got it. Um, So it's pretty exciting for those trickier ones. Um, uh, But obviously utilizing everything that we can. The idea is to make it as easy as possible for when we're not there, but someone else is actually doing the surveying. Mm -hmm. So there certainly comes with some challenges. um, And not just that, obviously our weather at the moment has been, is crazy. So we've had to cancel surveys and surveys and surveys and it seems to be beautiful weather during the week and then oh it's the weekend let's have a cyclone arrive so um yeah <laughs> yeah makes it really easy for all of us
2: yeah we have the reverse where it's like beautiful on the weekend and then just torrential downpour all week when i'm doing field work uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah nice to have that beautiful weekend when i'm not working but at the same time like come on it's right being rained on
1: yes yes I completely appreciate
2: that. It's like they just know you're going to do field work and the weather's just like, nope.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, cool. Well, that's kind of exciting, though. At least, you, like I said, at least you get your nice sunny weekends. But, yeah, definitely makes it – makes work a little bit harder when you're really not enjoying the uh, wet and and murky conditions kind of thing.
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 So – I don't know. What else can you tell me about it? Because it's just like fascinating to me. I mean, I've, I've done some diving and I, but I'm not, I'm not good at it and I don't really know what I'm looking at, but it's just like fascinating because it's so different from, you know, what we are conditioned here.
1: Yeah. And I guess that's what I really, to be honest, I love The travel aspect and seeing these different areas wherever we go. So I always tell the people that I train. Yeah, I was actually just in a training session last, well, yesterday, Um, and so we've uh, had a bit of a break to come and do this as well. But essentially, like we always tell people, once you've done the course, you just won't see the reef the same again. And the reason behind that is because you start to understand the impacts of each component. It's like, all right, well, I saw some pretty coral but actually, oh, look at this type of coral and the fact that this coral is growing here means this. And oh, this type of algae over here is actually a seasonal algae and it means that this kind of animal might be here to, d- to kind of keep it in control or in check. So it seems quite interesting from that perspective. But I guess um, for me, I really like that travel aspect and being able to just go for a dive and see different areas. So I've spent quite a bit of time, um, well, part of my job in Mozambique was actually to be a whale shark researcher um, terrible job I know um, and I, it actually came to a front uh, one day in particular so as I mentioned briefly my background is actually it's marine biology I've got a degree in marine biology or in science and also marine parasitology was what I did my honours in so when I was living in Mozambique I'd made friends um, with one of the world's leading whale shark specialists and he knew I loved parasites and I was looking at trying to establish that looking at the parasites on top of a whale shark, tiny little copepods to see whether they'd work as a biological tag and essentially being able to tell where these whale sharks are coming from rather than putting massive satellite tags on them. Um, So my job, he's phoned me up one day and he's like, right, can you get down the beach? Uh, Obviously I live on the beach kind of thing. If you can get down here now, I'm going to take a boat out. We're going to try and take these parasites off whale sharks. So this whole experience of swim, whale sharks are fast. So swimming up next to this whale shark, but behind it, because if you, if you actually come up from on the side of a whale shark, they're very inquisitive and they'll be like, oh, hey, how's it going? And they push you out of the water. So now I'm swimming on top behind this whale shark. I've got this tiny little pipette thing and a, like a, a, a little net. And I'm trying to flick the thing off into the net and hold it and pull it up. But every time I get close, the whale shark looks up, sees me, pushes me out of the water like I'm a big starfish. I have to roll off and then start the entire process again. Turns out I really suck at getting uh, parasites of a whale shark, <laughs> like i don 't think I got any, <laughs> but I did spend an entire day swimming with them, trying to trying to get them off there, um, and being proven that I cannot do it but um, some of the research opportunities that have kind of come up just from from where i 've been and my background has been pretty exciting, so
2: yeah, but <laughs> just the image in my head is. I've never seen a whale shark. I I mean, I want to because they seem amazing, but I'm I'm trying to imagine what that felt like, like a whale shark, like pushing you out of the water. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh,
1: it's quite interesting. And actually, um, in that same year. So I used to do these. It's a quite interesting story as to how I managed to get my dive masters. So I'd had an interest. I'd started it on Christmas Island. I just, I was over the job there. Like I really loved parts of Christmas Island. Like there's crabs just all through your house all the time. Like I had to sit on the front of my car with a rake to flick them off the road so that we wouldn't run over them as we're trying to get to work. Like it's really islands living, but with quite a bit of a difference on it. Um, but yeah, so like areas like Mozambique are quite completely different. And so when I was there and um, I used to run the, uh, like an, it's called an ocean experience or an ocean safari. Um, and I was started to volunteer and get out there and go swim with whale sharks and like tell stories about them because my friend was the researcher. So I could tell all the science that was going on. And then I got invited one day saying, um, look, you, you're doing really well in the boats and we've had people ask about you. Um, And we also heard that you wanna do your dive masters. So if we put you on your dive master course, would you go out and swim with the whale sharks every day? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, instead of paying for stuff, you want me to do my dive masters and I get to swim with my favorite animal in the entire world. It was like, ah, yes, you have a deal. So one day in particular, I was at the shop. It's right, it was raining. So for starters, like to find any animals in the water, you want it to be sunny because the sun helps you see into the water, et cetera. So we usually one uh, ocean safari a day, it's busy season. This was the third one for the day. We were exhausted, because it's about three hours in total, hadn't eaten. And these people were like, oh, we really wanna go. And I'd said, look, I will take you if you want to, but gotta be honest, it's now raining. I can't see into the water. It's, we don't usually see them in the afternoon. Like, I'm just telling you, you've got very small chance of ever seeing anything. We've only seen two all day and they're like, oh, it's our last chance. We're going to leave the country tomorrow. Can you please take us? So of course, okay, sweet. Jump on the boat. Everyone's super excited. We're all freezing cold because now it's raining and I can't see anything. And we've got masks on. We're trying to get around this corner, which you usually have to travel so far to see anything. And as we round the closest corner to where we are, I see a fin. And then I see a fin and then I saw a fin and then I saw another fin. Turns out there was 45 whale sharks in the water with the second only ever biggest um, feeding frenzy that we'd ever seen. And then there were so many whale sharks, no one wanted to get in the water to swim with them. So instead I just jumped in, (laughs) I jumped in with the camera anyway. I was like, I'm going to get so many photos. Um, And usually when we uh, do any whale shark research, we have to determine if they're male or female. So, for non-shark biologists out there, um, yeah, so uh, a male shark has two claspers, an immature male shark has small, a mature male shark has, like, two, and then a female has none. So, this whole time, it's quite difficult to tell around, probably about seven or eight metres, can't remember off the top of my head now, but about that size, you can start to see whether they're mature or immature. And this whole time, I was like, yeah, probably mature, yep. Yep. This time, these animals were on average 12 meters. So much, much bigger. So big boys. And they were big. They were huge, (laughs) massive males. And there was 45 of them. So I was getting squished in between them a little bit. And I was got scratches all over me. Like I remember just getting squashed between these two whale sharks on stage and popping my head up. And I'm like, why is no one in the water? And they're like, we can see what's happening to you. And I'm like, this is the best day of my life. (laughs) I was like, So by the time I came out, I think I got ID photos for maybe 15 to 20 of them. Um, So, yeah, not huge, but definitely more than we would have got normally. Um, And everyone else was standing on the boat looking at me like I'm a crazy person. But to this day, best day of my life, hands down, scratched and squashed by whale sharks. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. That's so many whale sharks. I feel like. Right? (laughs) No, but I feel like you normally see like one or two at a time, 45 is a lot of anything at a time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my so my friend was like, I don't believe you. And then I showed him photos. He's like, what? I was going to be on that boat. I can't believe it. So it was the first time anyone had been in the water at that time, because usually the weather would be like, nah, we're not going out. So it was yeah. all like everything kind of came together for this one particular experience that um, has uh, yeah remained at the top of the list forever now.
2: Yeah. How, so I know like, again, I'm not a whale person really, but I know like for humpback whales, like the fins, the underside of the, or the tail, I guess, Uh, that's like distinct markings and like manta ridge it's the spots on the side what is it on um, whale sharks
1: so whale sharks it's actually the spots as well it's on the side of them so it's the flanks there so you're trying to take a photo just near their dorsal fin between their gills and their dorsal fin and Mm -hmm. the original way that they did it and again this might have changed a little bit in the last 10 years um but it was originally developed with the same kind of um, technology that NASA was using to match the stars mm-hmm. or to look at star constellations. And so it, essentially that's what uh, Green Earth Shark Watch, that's what Leopard, the group with Leopard Sharks matching spots and with the Manta rays as well. It's a program that essentially you take photos on a slight angle and it can kind of re-jig them so that it can actually match it up and then you can match them throughout their lifespan. So you'll see that in most of the world, They're the same animals popping up in around about the same areas. They seem to be relatively um, resident in some areas. And back when I was doing it, so I should ask uh, the person, Simon Pierce is his name, I should ask him the exact stats now. But back then, it was approximately 93% of the population or 92% was male.
0: Oh.
1: So they weren't weren't finding females anywhere. Um, They now know there's females in uh, Galapagos in particular but the certain areas of the world, everywhere we've gone, it's always males. Like it's very rare to find females. Um, Madagascar had a couple, I think, but mostly males as well. Yeah.
2: interesting. So super
1: interesting population yeah. dynamics.
2: You clearly need females, right. To have more whale sharks, but yeah. Where are they?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. And where are they giving birth? So that's the whole okay. thing. So it was great. There's a po- like there's a bit of a podcast or there's, Definitely footage, et cetera, of this uh, guy, Simon going down and he's like, all right. So in Galapagos, they've been using a um, underwater system to actually, what is it like to test whether they're pregnant? So they go down and actually scan them and he's like, yeah, they're all going to be pregnant. I've been watching them. They're massive. Like, I know they're all pregnant there. And he's like, yeah, he's like, there's nothing in there. (laughs) So now where are all the pregnant females? These massive animals are over in Galapagos, but they're not pregnant females. Mm -hmm. no yeah so the mystery, the mystery continues
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah where do you think they are i have no idea like are they are whale sharks they're pretty close to i'm sure that they're probably not like super north or super south but i feel like around the middle of the world they're like a big band maybe but i don't know if that's true
1: yeah so areas like western australia they have a population there um we've been spotting them just recently like just off uh, where i live actually off the southeast queensland coastline in australia which is very odd we see one maybe every five years and they've already seen like two or three this year which is a bit odd um and as soon as it makes it on social media everyone's like i've got to go diving there i'm like yeah they move pretty fast but that's cool (laughs) everyone for the next three weeks is out there diving um and certainly like madagascar has a population there africa has a population from like mozambique heads up towards uh egypt Um, And I've seen them in Mexico as well. You've got a huge population there, depending on the year. Um, It's off uh, Isla Mujeres, yeah. Yeah, I
2: knew they were in the Gulf of Mexico somewhere because uh, my friends of mine have said they've seen them when they were doing their uh, research cruises in the Gulf. Um, Awesome. Which, yeah, (laughs) blows my mind. I was like, man, they're so close yet hundreds of miles away (laughs) easily. Yeah. Which is just so crazy. But, yeah, I don't know anything about that population except that they are out there somewhere.
1: Yeah, well I suspect like I'm not I don't study them as much anymore. I just they're my spirit animal, like I love them. Um mm-hmm. but essentially the females must be giving birth in really deep oceans and just in the areas that people aren't, essentially. Yeah. So like they, can, they can they right. can go so deep. Yeah. I mean, we're just missing them. So yeah, maybe they're smarter than we think they are and they're like, Yeah, we're not going near you guys. <laughs> so.
2: Okay, I'm just gonna go over there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're definitely somewhere, right? They didn't just like disappear in outer space and come back. So
1: no, they're no. There somewhere. not that I know of. Yeah.
2: Right. Have you ever seen Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy?
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, like the whale falling from the sky. and Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah. Also true. Yeah. I don't, I've never seen that
2: happen, but you never know. Right. We don't, this, lots of places people aren't. There's no telling.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. Man.
2: Yeah. The swallow-tailed kite, which is a bird, is my animal um like yeah. black and white raptor uh here i have a picture a sticker of one on my water bottle
1: ah uh, yeah very cool i do like kites
2: yeah they uh like winter in the amazon and then breed in the chakalaya basin around here uh so we're like almost to kite season it should be here in the next week or two. Oh, very cool Exciting.
1: and do you do you ever call yourself a twitcher or is that like a derogatory term to you
2: i don't know what that i've never heard of that before
1: what does that mean? So, Twitcher just means someone that likes birds. So, you're a Twitcher. But like, it's oh, not really... I it's heard not- that. Oh, well, there you go. So, I didn't realise there was a Twitcher until, like... No, I definitely am. But I did a bird thing on Christmas Island. I was like, yeah, this is cool. They have people come from all over the world to come and learn about birds there. And I was working for parks, uh, like Parks and Wildlife at the time. And so we got to go out with the birdos and we were like testing what they were eating, et cetera, to see, yeah, essentially seeing if there was any plastics in anything as well. Um, But doing food surveys, we were doing like um, population dynamics. We were banding them. We actually have um, a particular goshawk that's found there. So we had to sit on the back of cars and like with like fishing rods or fishing reels with this fake mice behind so that you catch (laughs) them and then you could band them. It was very odd, but all of this cool stuff. But then, yeah, I didn't realise until like recently taking school students on international expeditions, I'll turn up and I was like, ooh, did you see that one there? That one looks like a, something eagle. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, I'm a twitcher. <laughs> Never really put the words to it. I think it's, it's not derogatory if you call yourself it, essentially. So it's, I think it's a cool term.
2: Yeah, I had just never heard it. I wonder if that's one of those things that's like Australia specific or if it's just not here specific.
1: Yeah, maybe. Maybe maybe it was on the island only and no one ever (laughs) uses it outside of the eight hundred people that live there.
2: (laughs) Maybe. But I mean it makes sense it kind of makes sense. Like, uh I don't know. People go nutso trying to find like a bird and yeah. Uh I'm not necessarily I'm not gonna go out of my way for it, but I definitely appreciate seeing them. Uh, I do get really excited when I see a swallowtail, like unnecessarily excited.
1: I quite like that you get unnecessarily excited. Well, so, okay. So then we could play this game. My favorite bird is a lilac crested roller. Sorry, a lilac breasted roller.
2: I've seen them. They're amazing. Right? They're beautiful. Yeah. They're just
1: stunning. Like all the colors of the rainbow, but in one tiny little beautiful little bird.
2: Yeah. Oh, my God. I have a... um. So I went to uh, Zimbabwe and Botswana in 2013. And when I was in Botswana, uh, I saw some, like, I got some really good looks and some really good pictures. I'm like, these things are beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> like, this be fake. like, it's made of cotton candy of all colors or, like, it's from Willy Wonka or something, and it's just beautiful.
1: <laughs> yeah. They're stunning animals. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: That's cool. Yeah.
1: Birdwatch's dream over there.
2: Yeah. I saw... I saw all kinds of cool birds, I saw like all kinds, just wildlife in general. I was just like in awe the whole time.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, we saw all kinds of things.
1: Yeah, Africa about is actually one of those continents.
2: Sorry. I'm still thinking about the lilac express and rollers. <laughs> uh,
1: I do really like them. And I saw something in Sri Lanka, actually, that looked very similar. And I was like, it's a roller, but I can't work out what sort. So then, of course, I got, yeah, went on, used used, used good old Google to work it out. But, um, yeah, there's some beautiful birds all over. And that's what I really like about it is that you can start to kind of see, like, similarities and at least work out. It might not be species, but you can certainly see what they are just based Mm -hmm. on their body shape. And that's actually, I realized the other day when I was trying to train someone in fish species, I do the same thing. Like, to me, it's on the shape more than anything. Mm-hmm. And if I don't know it, I will draw the shape on a piece of paper. And that's how I start to look for it in terms of researching the species. And you're like, all right. There was actually, there was one um, just recently on a reef I've never dived before. Um, brand new through um, down at the Gold Coast actually. And I, I saw this animal and I was like, huh, it looks like a catfish, but it's got the tail of an eel. I was like, this does not make sense in my brain. So I sat there, I was looking at it going, this does not make sense. There's two animals in one. So I took a heap of photos and the like the museum here has like a chat that you can send photos and helps id things um and i was like what is this it looks like a half catfish half eel and they're like uh yep it's an eel tailed catfish
2: I'm
0: like,
2: <laughs> well played well that's, played all right perfect that's hilarious This, dad, yeah. my dad who doesn't live that far from me he called me one time very similar story he's like there's this black and white bird that's like floating over the house, kind of like the way kites float. It's like, oh my God, I already know what it is. He's like, it's a <laughs> tail, like those barn swallows that live on the back of the porch. I was like, yeah, it's a swallow tailed kite. He's like, no shit. Like, yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. Good work dad. But I love that. Right. But that's the yeah. whole thing. I love, but I, can I say my favorite part out of that story is that of course he phoned you to be like, I just saw this because <laughs> I really like that. I guess, from doing some of the Homeward Bound homework, et cetera, like it keeps coming up of, as to, um, you know, what do people think of you? That question as a woman in STEM and I was talking with my triad and I'd said, I don't ever think of myself as a, a woman scientist in STEM. I've always just thought of myself as a scientist.
2: Same. The woman part the never came thing. into it. Yeah. It same thing. It was just like, I don't know. It never mattered what gender I was. It was just like, we're all scientists, go do your work. And like, it was never a thing yeah yeah so I wonder
1: why that is because one of the other girls was like no I've always had to define myself as a woman in this field and I'm like I've never had this and that's really really interesting to me so I wonder if it's got anything to do with the like biological science kind of because she's a civil
2: engineer yeah so uh my friend Hillary actually she and I had her our story session her story session this morning um and she's uh fisheries person and she and I had the same discussion we're like is it just this field or is it just where we grew up but she grew up in California I mean in the states but like in California and I'm in the south so maybe it's just our field because like I see and I I told her this too and I was like it seems to me people are just like just go do your science and everybody's kind of chill for the most part and like not that there isn't competition but there's not like cut for competition at least I haven't seen that so I wonder if that's, like, just a different just a different vibe or something. Um, yeah, I don't, know. I don't know.
1: Well, here's another one that I find interesting then. Um, are you – do you have brothers or sisters? I have one sister. And are you older or younger? I'm older. Well, the other two girls have siblings, but they're all the oldest. Hmm. And I'm like, well, because it's one of those things that, you know, if you're looking at personality types, et cetera, right, like the oldest – is always has has or had to have been in charge of the younger siblings, etc. And I'm like, isn't that interesting that all of us are the eldest so far? I was like, well, that's a small can't say that. Have yeah. only spoken to like a few of you, but essentially it's quite interesting in itself. Going, huh? Okay, so all these little personality traits that pop out, and yet still, mm-hmm. obviously, when you look at format or disc or LSI or any of it, mm-hmm. there's all these different profiles that'll pop up. But yeah, interesting. That some of the questions.
2: Yeah. what was what was your uh format number it was three same so
1: uh,
0: the way so you were what talking,
1: was your was yours a close one close for like did you have a not, second one that was close or not
2: no i was a solid three yeah okay <laughs> um okay. like almost at the edge of it uh yeah, yeah so i was just thinking because uh So like your story just kind of reminded me of my story because I'm just like, oh, this opportunity showed up. Now I'm going to go do that. And I'm like, I'm very much a planner and like try to get things done type person. But when it came to like, what am I going to do for like work or things? Like, that sounds cool. I'll go do that. That sounds cool. I'll go do that. (laughs) Because it's like opportunistic versus like I had a very strict plan or like agenda or something I'm just like, oh, this, this is cool. I'll do this now.
1: Um, yeah, so it's interesting yeah. because I think, like I, I went to university. So I guess if I if I flick back and tell you the start of the story, kind of thing. Essentially, um, I remember being in year four and sitting on the steps at school, and my best friend at the time. We shook hands and we're like, we're going to be marine biologists when we grow up. And we're like, yeah, pinky swear, shake hands, and be like, yeah, and we're going to change the world. And that was what we did. I I have this solid memory of sitting there, pinky swear yep, we're going to change the world. He's now a doctor. So he didn't follow that same path. But I remember being super young going, this is what I want to do. And so my entire school career, I was an overachiever. As soon as I hit university, not as much an overachiever, but I already knew exactly what I wanted to do through high school, through university. So I I structured everything to make sure I got into marine biology. Mm -hmm. That's where my passion lied. Had a had a little bit of a side, like just as I was putting my application in, I was like, "Oh, maybe I want to do forensic science actually," Um, (laughs) and I jammed that one in between marine biology. So I was like lucky, like essentially let fate decide as to what I got into. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's kind of how it really kicked off. And then I did the degree. I was at the university. I was at uh, so I yeah everything kind of fell into place. I got offered a, a. position with CSIRO, which was a pretty big deal, especially for someone straight out of university. Um, and it was for parasites looking at biological tags within a fish species, red snapper from memory, actually <laughs> along the Queensland coastline.
0: Oh, and then one of them I couldn't
1: ID, right? <laughs> and then I couldn't ID something. So I went to the museum. I remember being in board shorts and a singlet, yeah? like like totally Aussie, like what up? Walked in going, hey, I'm here to ID this species of parasite and this guy, seemed to get along with this scientist quite well. And he's like, yeah, by the way, there's a job coming up. Do you want it?" And I was like, <laughs> yeah, sure. This, this gig's gonna kick off shortly. So, you know, yeah, that sounds great. When I met the people that got the job alongside me, so there was always two of us, everyone had like, someone turned up in a suit and tie and they're like, yeah, I've been preparing <laughs> this for weeks. And I was like, do I tell you that I literally walked in in board shorts and thongs to say, Hey, how's it going? And this guy's like, Do you want a job? And I just kind of kept falling into things like that. And I actually I got offered work in the snow. Completely opposite to marine biology, obviously. But I was like, Yeah, sure, I want a snowboard. So I went and lived in the snow for four years and just like managed bars and stuff. But in between, that's when I was like, Yeah, I can't like you you know what it's like. You have a calling to do something, and hospitality's not where my heart is at. So yeah. Um but, yeah, just started looking for stuff. And, of course, moving to Christmas Island was never going to be easy. That's a huge move. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very small. There's 800 people there. It's a yeah, tiny, that's... tiny island covered in crabs. <laughs> and the funny part was it's covered. And the funny thing is, though, so I, I hate ants. Like, if you ask me what my fear is, I would say I don't have many fears at all. But ants, they, I just don't like them. They give me goosebumps if I see more than, like, five together. So the job I took was a, like an invasive species officer and biodiversity officer targeting the eradication of ants. <laughs> and so the yellow crazy ant in particular is a horrible ant, but it's, um, it gets the name. They're yellow. They're like about a centimetre long. Um, and unlike every single other ant species in the world, when, you, when two colonies of yellow crazy ants get together, they're like, stop, guys. Hey, how's it going? Now, normally most ants fight to the death yellow crazy ants go hey we're all the same do you want to have a big party and they have this <laughs> massive party and they create what's called a super colony so these super colonies are huge they've got hundreds of queens within any one colony now the the island is 22 kilometers wide right or like from longest at point to point um and we found a colony that was over seven kilometers wide what? like that's Yeah, so we're chasing our tail there ever. We will never eradicate them. They have to heli bait just to get stuff out. So then these crazy ants, if you go across anywhere that they live, they're like, ah, they actually move all crazy and they start spraying formic acid everywhere. So if you've got a cut, you know about it and it stinks like, you know, salt and vinegar chips and it's gross and they climb everywhere so even using completely protective equipment they were all over my face and wherever so i'd be standing on a nest and they would climb up my entire body i was like no i'm still out can't i was like i'm gonna conquer this fear but instead just pretty much just kept it just as bad as ever um but so yeah this our whole job was to get rid of these ants and the thing is so the red crab is an endemic species there the red crab would actually move, migrate, so they live on the top of the island. they migrate down to do their little dance and get rid of the eggs. Um, and so as they migrate down, they walk across where the ants are, the ants get all crappy and be like, oh, and they spray formic acid. So then these crabs can't see. They get blinded from the formic acid, they can't find food and they die. When they die, they become food for the crazy ants and then oh. the crazy ants colonies reproduce and then it's bigger and bigger and bigger. So our job was literally to go in and try and eradicate an ant that will never be eradicated. Um, it's, and this is in the most remote areas that you'd have to hike for four hours to get in there with like 10 kilos of bait on your back. And then these rubber crabs, which are coconut crabs, that massive, I've got photos that they're wider than my body. So they, if, if they eat any of the bait, they die or they, they get, uh, it's a neurotoxin. So then somebody's job was to go running in front of everybody else to grab these giant crabs, to put them in a hessian sack, to put them on your back and then run out of the area and make sure that they weren't going to eat any of the bait. So it was, like, the most ridiculous, like, it needs some of that terrible music. <laughs> like, it's just, it was hard work, but it was super, super interesting and covered in ridiculous number of animals. And then, like, we found um, the Abbott's booby is a, a, an endemic type of bird there. Um, found one on the ground. And they, they live up in, most of them live everywhere, but these ones live up in the canopy. So this one had fallen down. So the only way to get it back up there is it needs to fly back up. Or I'm gonna end up looking after it on my front porch. So this one, we're like, sweet. We A, I've got I've got scars to prove it bit me while I was trying <laughs> to look after me. Then you put it on the roll bar of the car and if we sat it on the roll bar and we're sitting down there. And you drive slowly through the jungle where there's open area, slowly faster to see if it would take off. If it takes off and makes it up to the top, perfect. If it doesn't, you're stuck with a bird. So I had a Abbott's booby as a pet slash what, resident at the front of my house for like two weeks whilst we pretty much just fed it all you all you can do is feed it to make sure that it stays there until it's healthy enough to take off by itself but it's like that there's nowhere else in the world that that kind of stuff happens or that you have to sit on your car to go and like oh sorry there's too many crabs on the road today get your rake out you're like that's not a sentence most people would say (laughs) Right. yeah but and yet that's exactly what made the whole experience so awesome yeah
2: oh man The images in my head right now are hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) I will send you some
1: some images through, so maybe it makes it, oh, maybe it's just as hilarious, who knows, but yeah.
2: Yeah, it looks really funny in my head, which is probably what it would look like in real life. Yeah. Um, When you, you said you had interest in marine biology when you were younger, and I feel like that's also really common, maybe not marine biology specifically, but just like natural sciences in general, because that's the same as me, it's the same as like, a lot of the people i've talked to for this podcast so far it's like they had this interest as a kid for one reason or another and yeah. they just like at some point discovered wait that's a job i'm doing that um, yeah that's what happened to me as well but i didn't know what it was called at first but um and then i got lucky so by discovering it
1: and do you think that that has that's been an impact based from your parents or anything as well like like maybe they gave you the opportunity to, for example, play outside or in areas where there were animals or, or environments that you could explore because I was always one to pick up bugs. I've got photos of me with a snake wrapped around my neck or whatever. And like, Hey, there's a kangaroo that's in our living room. Like there was always animals around. So there was never that fear that there were anything but awesome. Mm -hmm. But some people obviously have this, this fear. And I wonder where it actually came from.
2: Yeah. It's probably a lot of that for sure uh i remember sitting like hiding in the shrubs and my parents you know when i was a kid like trying to get a look at a bird figure out what it was (laughs) like you know i was was like six or seven or something and then that just sort of like and we were pretty free range in, you know the late 80s early 90s and um saw all kinds of stuff rode my bike everywhere uh and i think all of that just like fed it right um yeah i think so so then, yeah, when I got, I was in high school, and I was like, I want to do biology, because for me, biology was just like living things. So, because I, yeah. I, didn't live on the, I mean, I live in a coastal state, but I didn't live on the coast. Um, so I, yeah. I don't even think I, I knew the word marine at the time, really. And then I got to college, and I was like, biology is not what I want to do. I want to do something with like animals and wildlife. And then I'll, there's a whole wildlife and fisheries program. I was like, that's it. Sign me up. Um, but I didn't know what it was called at the time. It was like, that's what I want to do. So, but that's like, that's becoming a theme, theme, but it's like really common with everybody I've talked to that's in like natural sciences. And it's very interesting.
1: Um, Yeah. yeah, So that in itself is actually super interesting then. Like, like you said, so just based on the, the understanding of the stories, like it's, it's seeing, you have that opportunity to kind of see where there are similarities. And I think that, to me is super fascinating. So out of, um, because how many people have you been able to talk to? And most of them coming from the Homeward Bound stuff or just friends and family that work is around that you? It's a combination.
2: Or? So your, your episode is number 18 and it's been a mixture of people I went to college or grad school with um, or know from one thing or another and a lot of people like in natural sciences and a lot of people with red snapper. So <laughs> that's why I said this snapper. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Several fisheries people who all you know went through Red Snapper at some point. Um Yeah, and it's just like a lot of the um biologists had this like interest as a kid. For either like my friend Courtney, hers is like episode three, I think. She like grew up in Rhode Island right by the ocean and so she just like that was like the thing that was in her life as an early influence and my friend Hillary grew up on the West coast. Um, so it was like an influence for her and it's just, yeah, it's just seems yeah. partly, probably just like innate interest and partly circumstances.
1: Yeah. And I think it, it's really interesting when you talk about, like you mentioned earlier that, you know, that you're lucky, but realistically, I don't think it is luck at all. I think what it comes down to is that essentially you put it out there that, Hey, there's all of this cool stuff and you're like, yeah, I'll do it. Like, I think it's an ability to say yes just be like, yeah, sure. I've never done it before. So why not? Um, It's different if you say no to things because you know that you don't enjoy it. But if you've never tried something and you're saying yes, I think there's certainly more opportunities to kind of go further and explore more exciting things. And it kind of, yeah, that seems to just put you in this weird wave or like little pathway. And it's not until you get the opportunity to kind of reflect and go, Oh, wow, I've done some pretty cool stuff. And that was really weird how I got there in the first place.
2: Yeah, you would love my friend Hillary that I talked to this morning because she said something almost exactly the same. Because cool. I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly. But she said something. It's like luck is just being in the right place and taking the opportunity. Um, yeah, that's, that's cool. People. So I was like, yeah, it's basically the same conversation. It's crazy. Yeah. How it yeah.
1: I heard a great thing last both night. Right. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I heard this great thing yesterday that said um, the world is full of dabblers. Don't be a doubler. It's was like, oh, <laughs> true. We are like, yeah, okay. Uh, Touche
2: there. Touche. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so I, would, I don't know how I even figure out who, what is the impact for like how people end up in this field or like we were talking about how we don't, you, you both don't feel like gender ever mattered. Um, so I don't, I don't know how we fuss all that out, but it would be really mm-hmm. interesting to figure it out.
0: Um, yeah
1: and I guess maybe some of that will come to like to the forefront when we have those bigger conversations with the larger team etc because that's the one thing I noticed so my triad has a like someone who works in cancer research a civil engineer and myself so very very different fields and Mm -hmm. it's only the civil engineer who's had um, gender inequality issues and I had said up until maybe a year ago I would have said oh there's no I don't have any issue like gender inequality what are you talking about And I actually um, stepped into the interim general manager position um, for the company I work for. I'm now the general manager. But during that time, I had an opportunity because I had to do everyone's pays. And I realized that someone who had been in a job below me for significantly less time, but was male, was getting paid higher. Mm. And I'm like, this is not okay. Um, And it's interesting because the rest of the organization is predominantly female. So the person in the place at the time had not even picked up or had okayed someone else else's pay rate to be so much different. And that kind of stung, not because of the actual pay rate itself, but more of the fact that I'm like, I'm spruiking gender equality. You guys spruik with me. And this is happening behind closed doors. I'm like, it really burnt me just on that. But that's the only case I really have ever had it to my knowledge.
2: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah yeah every job every full-time job i've had has like a very defined pay scale and like if you're at this level this is the pay you make we are like yeah it's like little boxes and you just move boxes um yeah which is kind of easy so
1: yeah that's a lot of government as well though right a lot of institutions would already have that in place and i'm pretty sure that's the same as in australia like it's scale whatever or 6.2 right. blah 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 but yeah i am. Um, yeah. So that's true. I guess that eliminates a lot of that anyway. And then it's quite transparent as well because you know exactly what level you're on. So therefore, you know, what pay you have.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it makes it easy. You don't really have to make that decision. Uh,
0: yeah.
2: And it, you know, I guess there's goods and bads, but it is mostly yeah. good. I feel like. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm quite conscious that we only have a couple of minutes left. Or maybe we don't up to you, I guess, but is there anything else in particular that you wanted to discuss or? solve the world's
2: problems (laughs) uh we're gonna solve the problems but oh it takes a while yes um yeah i don't have any other questions for you i I have loved hearing all of your stories i feel like the crabs and crazy ant thing might have been on planet earth because when you were talking about that i was like i had this like video footage rolling through my brain i was like i've seen this somewhere and when i was in grad school i I did a lot of GIS work and I would just sit on the couch at my house because I could get stuff done there because nobody would like walk past my office and I would just sit on my couch with my laptop for like 10, 11 hours a day digitizing and I would just like play planet earth on loop on the TV for like background noise. And I was like, I definitely have seen footage of this and I don't know if it was there specifically, but like I've seen this somewhere.
0: Yeah, quite
1: possibly. And it's funny because when we were saying like, you know, whether you take opportunities, et cetera, I only found out about that job I don't know again i was just trying to find work i guess and it it had popped up um and i remember a couple of things about it in particular one was that the interview process um when i got there or when i was it was an online interview um or over the phone and the manager of the park at the time he's like are you vegetarian i'm like uh no he's like okay but do you like salad i was like yeah he's like i'm gonna warn you right now if you move here it's 12 dollars for a lettuce and i was like um okay It was because everything on the island is either pulled in over by a boat or by plane. So there was actually like one plane a week that would come up with fresh food and it came from Singapore and one normal lettuce is 12 Australian dollars. That's ridiculous. On mainland, they're like a dollar. And so it's just because it's a weight and like Mm -hmm. uh, size kind of thing. So everything and you turn up and if you were three minutes late to the opening of this one particular store, you didn't get any fresh food. It was like elbows out. I only went there once because I'm like, this is hectic. Like they were oh. even like they even had Maccas. Somebody had bought McDonald's and they would like put it in Gladwrap and then they'd come and sell that on the – the. the it's, it, it legitimately would happen. It's so weird. The whole place is weird. But then when I finally was trying to go, oh, do I take the job because it's so far and I have to go and live in this house called the Pink House out in the middle of nowhere with no phone reception and an outdoor toilet. Um, that's part of like the moving process there is like, here you go, just your own quarantine. But when we were trying to decide, it kept coming up on like on TV. And so David Attenborough has done a story on it. It's old, but that had played on the night when I was like, Oh, do I go? Do I not? I'm like, are you kidding me? If this isn't the, (laughs) if this isn't the universe sending suggestions, I don't know what is. So it's funny what you start to notice when you've kind of, uh, when it comes Mm. into your forefront of your brain. So
2: yeah. yeah that's funny i love how your opportunities just keep following you around and like knocking on the door
1: <laughs> i'm like look it'd be great if a couple more would do it but
2: uh <laughs> but i'm like but i don't really i guess i
1: just need to know what happens next don't i yeah i'm quite happy with the reef check at the moment it's quite hectic but it's fun and we've just been training so this weekend provided everything goes ahead so yesterday and today is we're training reef ambassadors so essentially The whole point of what we do is ultimately we train recreational divers to monitor the reef. And then we train. um, But the thing is, as you would know, scientists are not great at communication and the community is not great at understanding all of the bits of science. So we train reef ambassadors, which is essentially the community activation component of like meshing the two together. So communicating the science that we're collecting into like these nice bite sized chunks that people can actually understand um, and then take with them. So the idea is that the eyes don't glaze over, but instead they have an understanding as to how do you affect the health of the reef, the ocean, the planet from the beauty of your own home. What kind of decisions can you make on a daily basis that will actually, when we all do these little actions, they're all ripples, but together we create waves
0: essentially what it's
1: about. So, yeah, so it's a, a very interesting time to be part of it when, you know, when we get to do all of this training and we actively get to jump in the water and see people's like, oh, I get it now. It's my favorite part. It's like oh, I'm being sure. that conduit. I love it. Love it.
2: The, that was my exact reaction. The first time I ever jumped in clear water because the water is like <laughs> yes. cool sediment, right? Like you can't see your hand in front of your face. So like, yeah, you, know, you just don't tell them what's in there. And so then I, a friend of mine lived in Hawaii and I went to see her and she took me snorkeling and I just like jumped in the water, not even thinking about it. I could see that the water was blue and clear. But then I get in the water, my mask on. I was like, holy shit, I can see the bottom <laughs> and other things swimming by. Yeah. It blew my mind.
1: But yeah, for real, like the one of our, lo- our closest areas is Morton Bay. And if we get two meters, like, whoo, two meters we're doing real well so then when we get to go up north to some of these more exotic islands i'm like they're like oh yeah it was an average day when they had 20 meters visibility i'm like man if we get 30 centimeters sometimes i'm like well as long as i can see the tape measure this is pretty good right (laughs) like i've managed to lose a team in three meters of water because i can't see anything and i'm like i've got to go I'm going to see you guys at the surface in a second. You'll find the float. You'll try and chase them down and be like, they should be at the bottom of this. I'm like, and yet I still can't see anything. Like, this is ridiculous.
2: Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I certainly appreciate it. And I guess it's funny because the maldive stuff, oh, like, it's 30 to 40 meters sometimes. Yeah,
2: that's so fine. So, when it's
1: only 10 meters, you're like, ooh, only 10 <laughs> meters is a pretty rough dive. I'm like, anything anything over a meter, I'm fantastic with. Like, my expectations are really nice and low now, so <laughs> everything is amazing. you <laughs> like, yeah, so. that's
2: fantastic. A friend yeah. of mine says uh, they do diving for oysters in one of the rivers. Like it's it's like a river really close to a big open body of water. Like it's not technically a lake, but they call it a lake. Anyway, that's irrelevant. The point is, he's diving for oysters and can't see his hand in front of his face. So they're yeah. just like feeling around. I mean, they're in like six feet of water, but still, like. <laughs>
1: and oysters are sharp so you're right like,
2: how do you get anything done <laughs> like, just like i felt things that feel like oysters so <laughs> i have to get him to come tell that story
1: yeah that would actually be really interesting to see what what from that experience like how does that impact the rest of his life like does it mean you know what you can't see anything normally so is he really good in dark situations like <laughs> right. does he not stress? yeah because he's like yeah oh, i got this maybe he has an extra sense like, is where things are when he moves around. don't know. The possibilities are endless. I love it. Yeah.
2: I'm about to find out. Maybe that's, like, a superpower.
1: Yeah. I think, look, everybody has a superpower. It's just that not everyone's a particularly relevant to anything. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, a friend can do limbo anywhere and everywhere. If you just hold your arm out, she can go below it. It doesn't matter how low it is. But I'm like, that's not really, like, that's great. But that's her superpower. So,
2: yeah,
1: I will take that. Like, it would
2: be helpful if she was in, like, a heist movie or something. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Do you really need to squeeze under the door and the door is not touching the ground? Good work. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> well, so. yeah, well, let's just stay in touch. I'd love to, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly love to go for an adventure with you, so come on. Yeah, for sure. That sounds good. Yeah, perfect. And we can go and look at all the birds and animals we can find. It's perfect.
2: yeah of cool because I've never seen any of
1: those yeah well I mean we might get sick of penguins eventually but we can certainly see everything else
2: I, I don't think that's possible
1: no I don't either <laughs> having would,
2: so. never seen a penguin in the wild I still <laughs>
1: don't think that's possible <laughs> I don't either I will I always said that about a lot of animals I'm like I will always in that about oh, what was it chameleons in Madagascar <laughs> I was like I've always wanted to see chameleons and then uh, this guy's like no by the end of this hike you're going to be sick of chameleons I was like never and then we were really really hungry about six hours later after no food and still finding the same but I'm like I'm not sick of them I'm not sick of them but I'm really hungry can we keep going now I'm just gonna stop taking photos of them
2: so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny
1: yeah. yeah yeah cool well yeah for sure just let us know and I'd, I'd love to we'll add it to the list of things that I'm sure we're all doing but be cool right. to at least have a bit of an idea anyway be yeah cool. for sure
2: agreed yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much, Jody. This has been awesome. Thank you.
1: It's been lovely to get to know you as well. So yeah, I, I did am. listen to a few of your podcasts as well. So we get to know lots of new people. So it's cool.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been like a mix of friends I, you know, went to school with. Some people I had not known and some people from Homeward Bound. And it's, yeah, it's just been cool. Uh, and the people I knew it was like all these really great deep conversations, you know, like we probably would have just never had. Um, yeah. There have been no spark to start the fire I guess but yeah yeah it's been it's really good
1: yeah cool awesome well hopefully it goes gangbusters for you it looks like it's doing well
2: yeah so far so good so yeah thank you
1: you're very welcome
0: I hope you enjoyed hearing uh today's storyteller And if you want to find out more, I share a bunch of information and resources from every storyteller over on the podcast Facebook page. So go find us and like us. It's called Storytellers of STEM on Facebook. You can also find the same information and stuff on my Twitter at Flying Cypress, F-L-Y-I-N-G-C-Y-P-R-E-S-S on Twitter. I'll share all kinds of information and resources from each storyteller over there. Um, And if you would like to be on the podcast, I'm always looking for STEM storytellers. So if you have a story you'd like to share, uh, message me on Facebook or Twitter or check out my website, rachelvelani.com slash podcast. And there's a submission form and it will send info to me and then I will get in touch. So if you want to be on the podcast, hit me up. Thanks for listening.